Okay, another uh, great week. Welcome, welcome everybody. Welcome to another another week. I hope you had a wonderful, joy-filled weekend. Uh, mine, sadly, was mired by the fact that for some reason I'm a football fan, uh, a Ravens fan even worse, and of course they lost. To put it mildly, they lost in the divisional round of the playoffs. And the thing is, I was emotionally devastated. I was tormented, traumatized, broken, ruined, which is basically how I feel at the end of every football season, except for the two where we went to the Super Bowl and won. But then there's this moment, uh, the, the, the next day, and any sports fan I think could probably relate to this. There's, the nec- there's a moment the next day, maybe two days later, after the season is over, and it feels like you're waking up from hip- hypnosis or something. And I always think, you know, a couple days later, after I have a little bit of distance, I, th- I think, why do I care so much about this again? What, why do I have emotional capital invested in the outcome of a game played between people I don't even know? Like, what difference? How would my life be improved if my favorite team won a championship in the sport that I like? How is my life um, damaged when they don't? Why does any of this matter to me? And I can't answer those questions. I really can't. I don't know why it matters. Except to say that I think being a sports fan is a form of psychosis. I think it could be diagnosed. I'm sure eventually it will be diagnosed. In fact, I'm sure eventually the, uh, you know, the, uh, our, the, the psychiatric industry will come up with a, with a pill. They've come up with a pill for everything else. So they'll come up with a pill to, to cure um, sports fan-itis. And you know what? When they come up with that pill, I will take it because it's just it's not worth it. It really isn't. I wish I didn't care about sports. I could, you know, I, I could get my Sundays back. I could start, I don't know, gardening or something. I don't know. I'd figure out something to do with the time. But it's it's just better than sitting there caring so much about this nonsense. All right. Um, speaking of psychosis, we have to begin on a Monday with, unfortunately, not the kind of story you want to start your week with, but I think it's important. So there's this guy in uh, Michigan, pedophile, is going to be spending the next 10 to 20 years in prison after being caught with child pornography. Now, in court, he offered two defenses of his behavior, and the defenses, fortunately, were not successful, but they are kind of interesting. Um, One, he said that child pornography is protected under the First Amendment. Two, he claimed that he himself, though he is a, I think, 45-year-old man, he claimed that he's really an eight-year-old girl. So let's take a look at uh, a report done by the local ABC affiliate down in, uh, over in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where this case happened. Um, here's uh, their, their, their report on this. Watch. Joseph Goldberg argued that his drawings and computer images did not constitute child pornography. Now, during a recent court appearance, he even compared his felony child porn convictions to the horrors of Auschwitz. I have always been an eight-year-old girl, and even my drawings and fantasies, I am always an eight-year-old girl. Bizarre statements in a case that was unique, to say the least. Joseph Goldbrick was arrested back in 2018 for child sexually abusive material found on his home computer. Now that came amid an investigation into a runaway 17-year-old girl from Ohio. He had a minor runaway at the house. During a search of Goldbrick's home on Pine Avenue Northwest in Grand Rapids, police recovered child pornography from his computer. Goldbrick contends it was not real child porn, but rather computer animated. And Goldbrick says he identifies as an eight-year-old girl. Whenever we did this, 
there are adults having sex with me in an online forum as an eight-year-old girl. Kent County Assistant Prosecutor Dan Helmer says more than 50 illicit images were on Gobrick's computer. They included actual victims known to police. But that wasn't all. Even during the trial, the defendant continued to draw drawings, uh, provide them to me, saying talking about raping babies in the Kent County Jail. Okay, so the judge was not convinced by that excuse, and he shouldn't be, obviously, because it's insane. But based on the precedents in place, uh, the precedent of accepting the self-identification of of a person who claims, you know, a man who claims to be a female. Well, we have to accept that self-identification. In other words, if you're going to accept that a man can be a woman, exactly on what basis do you reject his claim to being an eight-year-old girl? That's, that's the problem. If you're going to do the first thing, if you're going to say, yeah, this biological male is a woman in some mysterious sense, uh, then why can't he, in the same sort of mysterious sense, really be an eight-year-old girl or a, a 12-year-old boy or whatever he wants to be. So um, we know in this case, according to left-wing gender theory, which is now mainstream gender theory, promoted by the media and Hollywood and academia and, and everywhere else, corporations. So we know that we can't reject this scumbag's claim to being a female. That part he's allowed to have, right? We have no basis. If he says that he's a female, then we have to just give him that, don't we? The fact that he's a creepy old bald dude uh, is irrelevant. He says he's a female, and so he is. That's that's the way it goes. What about age, though? Well, remember, by the way, we, we, we've seen this before. There was that, a um, few years ago, there was that 50-plus-year-old man who left his family, left his, left his wife and kid to live as a six-year-old girl. You maybe remember, maybe you've remember, you remember that case. Maybe you've blocked it out of your head, probably a better thing to do. But on what basis do we reject their claims to being young girls if we accept the idea that a man can be a woman? See, we can't say, well, as, as sane and reasonable people, we, our response when a, when a 45-year-old man says he's a, an eight-year-old girl, we could say, well, he's, he's just not. He's, he's, he's physically not an eight-year-old girl in any sense of the word, so that claim is nonsense. We can reject it on that basis. It is just factually, biologically, chronologically, physically, in every sense untrue, and therefore it's untrue. But the problem is that same argument also disqualifies any man who claims to be a woman because we could look at them and see that they are biologically, physically, uh, uh, chromosomally, uh, you know, uh, um, hormonally, in every sense, a male. And so, therefore, that's what they are. It's just not true that they're a woman. But if we're not, if, if, if we can't do that, if we can't look at someone physically and make these determinations based on science and biology then again, we're left with the same problem. How do, we, how do we disqualify someone who says that they're a child when they're really an adult? Uh, because we've already established that physical and biological re realities are irrelevant. And we can't say, well, gender is fluid, but age is not. First of all, gender is not actually fluid. There's just two of them, biologically speaking. There aren't any others. 
It, it is a binary system. We just pretend that it's, it's not binary, that it's fluid. So why can't we do the same with age? In fact, here's the thing. Age actually is fluid in a sense, in the sense that nobody stays one age forever. I'm a 33-year-old man now. I'm not going to be a 33-year-old man two years from now. I'm still going to be a man, but I won't be 33 any, anymore. I wasn't a 12-year-old boy forever. I was only that for one year, right? So age does change. Moreover, a man who says that he, um, he feels like a woman has no frame of reference. He's, he's never been a woman, and therefore he doesn't know what, it, what it's like to feel like one. And so whatever feelings he's having, he has no way of knowing if those are actually woman feelings. And so therefore it becomes this circular logic where he says he is a woman because he feels like one. Well, how does he know that he feels like one? Because he is one, right? It's a circle. It doesn't make any sense. But with age, at least an adult who claims to feel like a child, whatever that means, can at least say that he has some frame of reference. He was at one point a child, so he sort of knows what that feels like. Moreover, we know that there are psychological and neurological conditions that cause adults to essentially have the brains of, of a, the brain of a child. You know, that, that, that is a thing that happens. There are people who are severely um, mentally delayed, and even though their body is that of an adult, they have the mind of a child. So therefore, claiming to be a child stuck in an adult's body actually can have some truth to it. Whereas claiming to be a woman stuck in a man's body just has no truth to it whatsoever. Now, I don't think that's the case for this scumbag, who, by the way, should be going to prison for life, not just for 10 years or 20 years. But I'm just trying to make the point here that trans age actually has a better scientific basis and is more justifiable than transgenderism. It's still BS. It's still bogus. It's still nonsense. It's still, it's still madness. But if you're going to accept transgenderism, there just is, is no logical and coherent argument for rejecting trans ageism. There just isn't. Whatever argument you make, against the claim that an adult can identify as a child would apply, would even more so apply to the claims that a man can be a woman. So you have to choose. It's as simple as that. And this is not a slippery slope, arg slope argument because I'm not talking about slopes, you know, about one thing, one thing leading to a more extreme thing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that transgenderism is leading to or will lead to the more extreme case of, uh, of an adult claiming to be a child. What I'm saying is that transgenderism is already a more extreme thing than transageism and transracialism, by the way, for that matter. Um, I'm saying that those things are higher up on the slope. And if we're on this slippery slope into, into crazyville, you know, you've got trans ageism and transracialism like somewhere around here on the slope, and then transgenderism is like down here. Because it makes less sense than these other things over here. Or, you know, in fact, putting slopes aside entirely, this is really a question of categories. There are certain things about yourself that you can change. Your hairstyle, your weight, um, you can learn a new language. Uh, your personality can change, and, and it does for everybody to some extent. These things are, in some sense, fluid. They change. They can be adjusted. You can choose to make changes to them. 
But then there are other things that you cannot choose to change because they're simply facts about you. They just are your sex, your race, your age. My point is this. If you're going to extract anything from that second category of unchangeable things and try to put it into the first, then everything else in that category comes with it. Because the logic that keeps one thing in that category keeps everything there. And if we're abandoning that logic, then there is no basis anymore to keep anything in that category. And now we have to say that that category doesn't exist. The category of things that you can't change about yourself now simply doesn't exist. You can change everything. Especially uh, when it comes to sex, because in fact, your sex is is the thing that most belongs in the second category. It is the most unchangeable thing about you. It is the brutest of brute facts. Your age will change on its own. Your race can be a mix of many different things. But your sex just is. If that, if that of all things is now relative, then so is everything else. And that's the problem here. So what the left will do, um, because they 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 haven't they haven't even really gotten to the point yet where they're accepting transracialism, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I, I think we see movement in that direction, but they're not there yet. Uh, they certainly aren't accepting trans ageism, but they've already made the arguments for it. And this is what we see with the left a lot. Where they make they make a certain argument because they're trying to justify one particular thing. But the problem is that that argument also justifies a whole bunch of other things. And it takes them a while to circle back around and say, oh yeah, you know that other stuff? Yeah, maybe that stuff is, is good too. At first, they'll always say, no, 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 no. We're not trying to justify that other stuff. No, 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 this is different. They can't tell you why it's different. They can't explain it. But they'll say that it is. Uh, same thing with, the, you know, another obvious example is with marriage. They say marriage is not between one man and one woman. And uh, originally they said, oh, no, you know, we're not trying to justify things like um, polygamy. Now, now we're at the point where I think most leftists will say, yeah, sure, who cares? Polygamy's fine. But at first they claimed, if you recall, when we, when we were having this argument, especially in the lead up to the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage, the claim for most leftists was, no, 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 we're not trying to judge. No, polygamy, no, that's not, that's not the point here. But of course, every argument you've made for um, getting rid of the idea of, of one man, one woman marriage would apply to polygamists just as much. Even more so, actually. Um, that's another example where polygamy is a little bit further up on the slope, not further down. It just took them a while to circle back around. And the same thing is going to happen with this trans, with the trans stuff, where they're transing everything. They started with gender. That is the most extreme thing to, to trans. Of all the things to trans, that's the most extreme. But they started with that, and now it's just a matter of circling back around and saying, yeah, that too. Oh, sure, yeah, that also. All right, before we move on, let's, uh, let's hear a, a word from uh, our friends over at Duke Cannon. Here's a fact. Most resolutions don't last, right? Mostly because dramatic self-improvement is really hard. And that's why Duke Cannon's supply company 
wants you to consider lowering your expectations this year. And this is, see, this is what I like. It's like, let's be realistic, okay? Lower the expectations with the moderate self-improvement box. It's a one-step program to achieving a slightly better version of yourself. This is not a total transformation, folks. This is just a, you know, a slight improvement. Baby steps. This box is packed with over $80 of premium American-made grooming goods designed to help you feel, look, and smell just a little bit better in 2020. Um, usually this is 84 bucks. You're getting it for $50, though, for only a limited time. And so you can, you can improve things like you'll have less stink, right? Um, where they've got the, uh, the trench warfare antiperspirant and, uh, and uh, deodorant, uh, where you get that clean, sort of subtle scent of fresh air and, uh, and maybe a little bit of lumber as well. A little bit of lumberjack. You can have better hair. They've got the news anchor two-in-one hair wash. Um, and then you can also have the, pro- so you, you get rid of the bad scent. And then you, you add a little bit of the good scent with the uh, big-ass brick of soap, which I have right now in my shower as I speak. This is a, a program that I think anyone can follow because, again, it's not, about, it's not about a 180 turn. It's like, let's start with maybe, I don't know, 10 degrees. Complete the program and you'll receive a certificate of completion demonstrating your marginal commitment to moderate self-improvement. And this is something that everybody wants. By the way, it's free shipping to the lower 48 states. All products are tested by active duty military and 5% of the net profits are donated to causes benefiting veterans and active duty military. Duke Cannon prides itself in making its grooming goods work as hard as you do. They're champions of builders, farmers, soldiers, sledgehammerers, teachers, first responders, holders of doors and fixers of toilets, and they want you to feel right at home in Duke Cannon country. Visit DukeCannon.com. Use the promo code Walsh for 15% off your entire order. That's DukeCannon.com, promo code Walsh. All right, Bernie Sanders sent out a tweet that says, um, the tweet, the caption is, there are only 22 days until the Iowa caucus. It's time to get rolling. Can you take a trip to help our campaign win in the essential early states? Sign up here. And then... So that's a, okay, pretty normal caption. But it's a caption of a video of him, Sanders, pulling out of the driveway of one of his three houses. And I don't know, just watch this clip. Why? I I don't know if this is self-deprecation. If so, then I respect it. But I I can't quite figure out why Bernie Sanders uh, released a video of himself charging out of his driveway, backing out of his driveway, swerving wildly, and and then backing out of the driveway at full speed without stopping to look both ways, like a stereotypical old person. This is the stuff of stand up comedy routines going back 40 years of how old people back out of their driveways. And then in that, now you have it, Bernie Sanders, 78-year-old man, however old he is, doing exactly that. That's, you know, backing out of the, you saw there was very little visibility because it's all the cars parked on the, on the road there. And he just charges right out. Doesn't stop to, to look. I don't, why would, I'm not sure what the point there is. And showing us that. Other than, I guess, just embracing it and saying, look, I'm, I am very old. That's true. This is how I back out of the driveway. Deal with it. And if that's his message, then I respect it. All right, so last week, I don't remember why this came up exactly, but uh, last week we were talking about 
how so many people in our culture today um, value their pets over fellow human beings. And one of the emails I received in response to that discussion inspired me to put up an online poll. And that poll has revealed some disturbing findings. So the email um, from Trinity says, Hi, Matt, I agree with everything you said on the show regarding people valuing dogs more than humans. I asked many people what, what would they choose, a random person or their pet, if they were both found drowning. Uh, surprisingly, everyone answered their pet. What do you think is the underlying reason for this? Is it the lack of religion and unclear morals? So I thought this was a good question. So I stole the question, adjusted it a little bit, and I put it on my Twitter. I posed a version of this. And my question was, very simple, your favorite pet and a grown man you don't know are trapped in a burning building. You can only save one. Who do you choose? Now, as of this morning, I haven't checked in a few hours, but as of this morning, there were almost 30,000 votes tabulated. Out of that, out of 30,000 votes, 40%, 40% said they would let a human being burn to death in favor of saving an animal. 40%. Now, you might say this is not a scientific Result, this was not a scientific poll, this is a Twitter poll. It's not even, it's not exactly a random sample, right? These are people who mostly follow me on Twitter, so is there some bias there or whatever? Um, and, and, and that's true. But listen to this, because this is kind of remarkable. I looked this up after the fact. I found that a, a, a psychologist conducted a similar survey in a more scientific setting to find out, you know, whether people will put their pet above the needs of a human. And um, his results are exactly the same. So this psychologist named uh, Richard Topolsky surveyed people and asked them, uh, in this scenario, it's a, it's, a, it's a person and a dog and they're both about to be hit by a bus and you can only save one. And again, in this case, 40%, the same exact percentage, 40% said that they would save their dog over a human. What are the chances, you know, that two surveys conducted separately would coincidentally come to the same conclusion in terms of the percentages? I think it's more likely that this 40%, the reason why we both came to 40% is because that really is representative. 40% of people in this country do put their pets' lives above human life. And what makes this even more depressing is that my followers skew heavily, heavily in the direction of conservative Christians. So, you know, maybe if you had just seen this poll result from the psychologist, you would say, oh, you know, well, maybe that's a whole bunch of liberal, godless atheists, uh, you know, who, 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 nihilists who don't value human life at all. And so, no, this is, uh, this is not that. This is, this apparently doesn't matter what your ideology is or religion, you know, this is, there's the same tendency. Now, as expected in Topolsky's study, he found that uh, the 40% figure dips significantly when people are asked to choose between their dog and somebody they know. So if it's a stranger, then yeah, 40% are saying, screw that guy, let him get splattered by the bus. But if you say, okay, what if it's a, um, and in fact, the number is still really high if it's a distant cousin. So it could be a family member, but if it's a distant cousin, I think it was, I don't know, I don't have it in front of me, but it was a, a high percentage of people said, even in that case, see you later, cousin. Um, now, if you get down to like best friend, grandparent, uh, best friend or grandparent, or maybe both if your grandparent is your best friend, 
in, in that case, the vast majority of people are going to save the best friend or the grandparent. But still, there still were a minority of people, according to this study, a small minority, but still they're there. There was a minority of people who said that they would let their grandmother get run over by a bus rather than their dog. Now, this speaks to something that I've been talking about for years, and uh, it annoys people whenever I talk about it, and I can already feel through the camera, I can feel people getting annoyed at me right now as I speak. It's a common feeling for me. Um, but I'm going to keep talking about it because I think it's, I think it's actually important. I think our, in, in, this is a, really a kind of a troubling trend. Um, it's, it's not good to have so many people who don't understand that their pet's life is not as valuable as human life. There is a problem in this culture of people failing to understand that human life is more important and more precious than animal life. The, the pet obsession has gotten to this pathological state where it's turning people into sociopaths who no longer recognize the inherent value of human life. I don't know how else to describe that. I mean, all these people, um, at least on my Twitter, it's not just that people were answering the survey, but they were justifying it openly, announcing and saying, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd totally, I'd let a person die for the sake of my dog. And it's like, you do realize that that's, you, you have the moral insight of a psychopath, right? You, you do realize that you couldn't possibly justify that morally on any level. You realize that, don't you? I don't know. It's, a, it's not even a rhetorical question. I don't know if these people realize it or not. Are they, just, are they just embracing the fact that they're psychopaths? Um, now, look, I'm not saying that having a pet automatically does that to you. Okay? I'm not saying that every person who has a pet is a psychopath. Um, yeah, maybe you can make an argument, but no, I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the obsessive, pet-focused, pet-centered life that some people lead has contributed to, has caused, has fed this delusion that animals are more, not even as important as people, but more important. And when people go around calling their pets their children and that sort of stuff, it, it, it seems like after a while, some of them really start to believe it. And I didn't put this poll up because honestly, I don't even want to know the answer. But I was tempted to ask, what if it was your dog and your child? Who do you choose? I'm betting you. Now, I, I think it'd be small minority, but there are people who would choose the dog. We already know from this psychologist that there are definitely people who choose the, the dog over the grandparent. This also, by the way, this is not, and, and before we try to make excuses and say, oh, this is natural, you know, people, this is how they are with their dogs. It's not natural. This is actually the opposite of natural. This is completely unnatural. Our natural inclination is to, is to prefer our own species. And every species is like this. Your natural inclination is supposed to be to prioritize your own species. We are all naturally speciesist, and we should be. That, that is a good um, prejudice to have. Every other species has it. I can guarantee you dogs care more about other dogs. 
Lions care more about other lions. Gorillas care about care more about other gorillas. They 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 are naturally inclined in that direction. So um, if you're tempted to say, well, of course people feel this way about their pets. That's how it's always been. No, it's it, it no, it's not. Of course, it's not how it's always it's always been. This is a distinctly modern and Western phenomenon. Phenomenon, as I said last week. Now, to answer the question posed by the person in the email saying, uh, you know, why is this happening? Why are so many people now essentially psychopaths who don't even understand that human life is more important than animal life? Uh, why do we live in a country where so many people would let a human being, likely a father and a husband, burn alive in favor of saving their stupid pets? Well, here's my theory to that. And I'll give, actually, I'll give my theory in a second, but I, I, I really want to dwell on this a second because I know that it's, it's a hypothetical and you could say that all day long. You could say, oh, it's just a hypothetical. Yeah, it's a hypothetical, but th- there's a point here. It's a, it's, a, it's a thought experiment to try to figure out what your priorities are. So if, you, you know, if you're in the 40%, think about what you're saying. You're saying that you would let a conscious, self-aware, human adult who, is mo- who certainly has a family and is most likely a husband and a father, you would let him burn alive a, a absolutely torturous, horrific death that he will be fully aware of. And you will let his family, be his children be orphaned. And you'll let his, 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 his wife be widowed for the sake of your dog. My God. <laughs> just, and I, I want to believe that most, maybe you're just not thinking it through. I don't know. Really think about that. Um, and then I had a lot of other people saying, oh, you know, we, you can't really answer this question. It's a difficult, it's one of those things you have to be, you don't know what you'll do in the moment until you're there. No, I know what I would do. I can tell you right now, I have a cat. Um, and, uh, if that cat is trapped in a burning building and there's a human there, see you later cat. That's, I don't even have to think about it. It's no hesitation, not even a second. There would not be one second of me going, "Mm." you know, I've got the guy there. Uh, is, is trapped, and then I've got the cat. There wouldn't be one second of me going, oh, should I get the cat? And then the guy looks at me and guilt trips me into, no, that wouldn't happen. I just, I'm going right for the guy. So why, you know, why is it? Why do people uh, put their pets above their, um, above humans? I, I think it comes down to selfishness. And when you think of it that way, it's a lot less mysterious. W- once you start to realize that most of the bad stuff you know, in life, most of the bad things we do, most of our bad priorities, even it always comes down to selfishness in the end. Because this pet obsession, and again, when I say obsession, I mean obsession. I'm not talking about if you have a pet and you love your pet, but the love you have for your pet is in a proper perspective and it's proportionate and you obviously put humans above your pet and you put your family above your pet and you put strangers above. You know, if you're in that category, then then go in peace. God be with you. I have no problem with you. Uh, I am also a pet owner. So I'm, you know, we're, we're, we're on the same page, right? I'm talking about the wackadoodles who openly announced that they would save their cat or dog and let a human being burn to death. That's what I'm talking about. Um, and for those people, I think it is selfishness which is very different from normal sort of animal lovers, uh, meaning the people in the first camp, people who love animals, but not more than they love people. And people like that, people who have a a very um, 
you know, have a, have a great passion for animals and are animal lovers, but, but still it's all in proportion and they would never value a, uh, an animal over a person. Those people I admire because I think, you know, it, 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 that comes from a, from a, um, in a, an abiding and abounding, just compassion for all living things. And, uh, and I think that's great, right? But the people who put the animals above other people, I think for them, it is a uh, sort of a selfishness. And, and I think the reason is, you know, what is it that they like about the pet? Well, it's because the pet makes them feel good. Uh, the way people talk about dogs, oh, you know, the dog worships the ground you walk on. They're so excited when you come home. And it's like, yeah, all that is fine. Now, personally, I don't need to be worshipped every second of the day. It's a little bit much, honestly, to have a dog following me around all hours of the day worshipping me. A little bit much. Don't really need that. I need a little space. But um, it can be nice sometimes, I suppose. But that's really what people love about their pets. And then they'll say things like, oh, a pet will never betray you like a person will. A pet will never lie to you like a person will. What they're really saying is, you know, I want to be in a relationship with someone where it's all about me and I am getting nothing but, but uh, it's, it's, it, I'm getting nothing but, but pleasure out of it. Um, and I, I never have to deal with any, you know, the other person never sort of intrudes their own personality on me. I never have to do, you know, I never have to do anything like forgive. That's what they're saying. That's why they prefer animals over humans. Because the relationship you can have with a human being is much richer and much deeper and much more meaningful. As anybody who's ever had a real relationship with another person knows. But yeah, it is a person. And so they have their own personality. They have their own goals. They have their own priorities. They have moral weaknesses. They are going to do things sometimes like like lie to you. They might betray you. So then you need to forgive them. And it takes more work on your end. And I think there are a lot of people who are so weak and so selfish and so pathetic that they don't want to do that work for another person. They just want to, they'll just, you know, they'll substitute a person for a dog and they don't have to worry about any of that. And the dog will just worship them. It'll be all about them. And, uh, you know, the dog's always there. They can keep the dog at home. When they go to work, they come home. The dog is there. They can always just put the dog where they want the dog. And it's always really just about them in the end. I also think there's the Disney effect. I think a lot of adults still think they're in a Disney movie. Um, and, and I guess because they grew up watching this. And so they ascribe noble intentions to their pets. They talk about their pets as if their pets are virtuous, saintly creatures. You know. They, 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 they really do ascribe virtuous motives to their pets. But you notice it never goes on the other end. Like, they would never accuse their dog of knowingly stealing. You know, they would never think that their dog should be held morally responsible for stealing something from the counter. Maybe, you know, stealing some, some, some food from the counter. Even if their dog goes and bites someone, they immediately make an excuse. They say, oh, it's just a, he's a dog. You know, he doesn't know any better. So when it comes to something bad, um, their dog doesn't deserve any moral guilt. But on the other hand, with the good stuff, it's, oh, no, he's loyal, he's loving. He's... So what they've, they've made the dog out to be um, this morally perfect, angelic creature, which, of course, is insane. And in reality, with animals, um, most of what they do is instinctive. You know, they do it because they've been programmed that way biologically by nature. 
uh, most of the love they show to you, it's only because you feed them. And, um, and if you stop feeding them, they'd probably eat you instead. That's the thing. You know, it's, it's a, that, that's, that's the, that's really the test. You say your dog loves you. I mean, maybe there's a certain emotional sense of that where he does have some affection for you. But if you stop feeding your dog, he'll eat you. And then he just will. Uh, your kids probably won't. But your dog will. Because he's a dog. And that's fine. You know, it's fine for dogs to be dogs. But uh, let's just... Let's just keep it in. Let's just keep it in perspective. Is all I'm trying to say. All right, let's go to emails. MattWalshow at gmail.com. MattWalshow at gmail.com. This is from Carlos. Says Matt, great show, great columns, great everything, etc. On Twitter, you were discussing thinkers who have different worldview worldviews from your own. You gave a favorable net mention to Sam Harris and even said you found his argument against free will persuasive. Can you elaborate on that? I have to say I was shocked to read this from you, given that you've so often defended free will. Um, yeah, uh, we, we were talking about that on, on, on Twitter. Um, and I do appreciate Sam Harris. I've read many of his books. I didn't say, and he wrote a book uh, against, you know, like arguing against the concept of free will. Pretty short little book. Uh, and I think it's worth reading. Now, I didn't say that his argument against free will was persuasive, let alone did I say that I was persuaded by it. So I didn't say that I read his book and said, you know what, there is no free will. I said it was, it was a more formidable argument that he presented than I expected. And, uh, and part of my point here is that we have to be willing to admit when somebody makes a formidable, i.e. credible, intelligent, plausible argument that we disagree with. Because I think if we've never encountered a formidable argument that we disagree with, that's a pretty good indication that we're living in a bubble. So I thought he made a pretty good case for his view, but uh, I still disagree with his conclusion. Let me tell you why I disagree, first of all, and then I'll get to the formidable aspect of, of his argument. I disagree with anybody claiming that free will doesn't exist, um, and this is determinism, if you want the fancy ism name for this view. I disagree because, as far, as far as I can tell, you just can't get around a simple fact. And that simple fact is that, like, I am choosing to do this right now, okay? Raising the mug up and down. Which, by the way, you can get these at the Daily Wire store. Um, I'm choosing to do this. I, I could not be doing this. I could be doing any number of other things. Rather than doing this, I could go downstairs and make a grilled cheese sandwich. I could go jump in a lake. I could go on a killing spree. I could, I could do all of those things. But instead, I'm sitting here right now, raising my mug up and down like an idiot. That's a choice that I'm making. And when I say that I could be doing those things, what I mean is those are theoretical options available to me, and there is nothing actively, physically preventing me from doing them. So I could do them. And if I could, and, and you know, I can do anything within the laws of physics. And if I can do anything theoretically within the laws of physics, then I have free will. At least that's what I mean when I talk about free will. Now, here's an example of true determinism. Computers. So I could build a fancy robot. Well, I couldn't build a fancy robot because I'm, I'm stupid. But a smart person could build a fancy robot um, that can, you know, walk across the room, pour a cup of coffee, bring it back to you. Something really impressive like that. But that's programmed. The, the robot has no choice, literally no choice. 
it could malfunction and go and do something else. But again, that's not a choice. That's just a malfunction. It can't choose to do something else. And with all due respect to Terminator and the Matrix, um, it couldn't actually choose to go out and kill people or enslave mankind or do any of that stuff. It can only do what it's programmed to do or else it can break. Those are kind of the two possibilities. Um, my computer could not even theoretically become a Buddhist. I could theoretically become a Buddhist. That's an option open to me. I could do it because I have free, I have free will. The only reason I'm not a Buddhist right now is because I haven't chosen to be one. So I think free will stands. But here's the formidable aspect of um, Harris's argument. And I'm summarizing it very briefly, trying not to make a straw man out of it. So if I do make a straw man out of it, that's, that's unintentional. But I think his point is basically this. So take a, a murderer, for example. Okay. Um, that murderer chose to be a murderer, I would say. Chose to shoot up the movie theater. Um, and you would say that, well, he chose to, to do that, and you chose not to do that. And that's the reason you're not a murderer, and he is. But Harris says, hold on a second. Wait a minute. What if you had the exact same genes as that guy? Not like pants, but genes, genetics. What if you had the exact same genes? And the same psychological makeup. And the same mental illnesses, if he has any. And um, the same family background. And the same childhood traumas. And every other thing that's happened to that guy that he didn't choose, let's say all of that happened to you also. Can you be so sure in that case that you wouldn't also be a mass murderer? And the answer, we have to admit, is no. You know, we can't be so sure. In fact, probably we would be. If we were in the exact same situation as that guy, exact same, from birth, everything is exactly the same. We'd probably do the same thing. In fact, we would probably be that guy. I mean, then we would essentially be him, and we'd probably do everything that he does. Another example, um, I think maybe even a, a better example would be, uh, an easier example would be suicide bomber. And, you know, with a suicide bomber, we could take even genetics and stuff out of it. And let's just say that, uh, you know, you grew up in Iraq and you were indoctrinated into militant Islam every day of your life from birth. And you were told every day of your life from birth that, you know, if you become a martyr, you'll get 72 virgins. And, uh, and you had all that same conditioning for years and years and years and years and years. Would you become a suicide bomber too? Probably. Um, and, 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 you know, and that's a good point that he raises, and I think we have to grapple with it. That's not a point that you can just gloss over. It's a point that we, and I, this, Harris makes, goes back to this theme in his book, where this is like, this is something we want to gloss over because it makes us uncomfortable. And we start to feel the, the foundations of our justice system sort of begin to collapse around us. Where if, if now we're saying that like we would probably do all of the bad things that bad people have done if we were in their same exact situation, it's like then what basis do we have to even put them in jail? And all these questions come rushing in and it's very disturbing. But here's my response. What Harris is talking about, um, these factors that he's talking about are influences. 
They are things that can influence you in one direction or another. And they may be very strong influences, very strong. You know, brainwashing from birth is a indoctrination from birth into a certain worldview. It doesn't have to be Milton Islam. It could be anything. But being indoctrinated into it from birth is a very, very strong influence. It is very hard to um, you know, be born into a certain worldview, a certain way of thinking, and to break out of that. It is very hard to do. Most people can't. And the only way that you know if you can is if you've done it. If you have never have, now hopefully it, you, you didn't need to because you were, you were sort of indoctrinated, quote unquote, into the right way of thinking. But um, if you've never had to make that effort of breaking out of that, then you don't really know if you could or not. And probably you can't because most people can't. But my point is you still have a choice. You aren't literally programmed you could theoretically do something else. And that's all I mean by free will, which is why I say that free will still stands, right? You take somebody in the inner city, um, someone uh, born, you know, with no father in the home, born in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the projects, uh, nothing but bad influences all around, nothing but crime and drugs all around, terrible school system, all of that, right? And then they go and become a drug dealer. And Harris would say, well, if you were in that exact same situation, wouldn't you also be a drug dealer? Probably. Yes, probably. But that doesn't mean they don't actually have a choice. They do have a choice. The choice is still there. You could choose something else. And we know that. One way we know that is that some people do choose. You know, there are a lot of people who are grown, who are born into terrible situations, frankly, end up being terrible people. And that's, that's the horrible thing about it. Just like there are a lot of people who, you know, suffer all kinds of trauma as, as, as children and then go on and become sexual abusers and pedophiles. I think if you look at most pedophiles and you look at their family background, you're going to find that a lot of horrible things happened to them when they were kids. But that doesn't mean that there is still a choice. You can break out of that. And we know there are plenty of people who are born in these horrible situations, whether they're born, you know, into militant Islam and they're trying to, people trying to condition them and condition them into being suicide bombers, or they're born into a situation where a lot of people become drug dealers. There are people born in those situations who do break out of that and make better choices and prove. And it takes a whole lot of courage and guts and, and everything more than probably I have or you have, but it is possible. Let's look at another example uh, let's say someone puts a gun to your head. Let's say that you're sitting at a desk, there's a button on the desk, and if you press that button, it's going gonna, it's gonna to set off an explosion across town that kills a thousand people. And let's say someone, puts, someone literally puts a gun to your head and says, press that button. Actual gun to the head. Now, I guess Sam Harris would say, your free will has been taken from you. Well, you never had free will to begin with, but, you know, uh, according to him, but you have no choice, he would say. You have a gun to your head. And on one level, it makes sense. Yeah, there's a gun to your head. What choice do you have? But my point is, you actually do have a choice. The gun represents a very, 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 very strong influence in one direction. But you could still choose not to press it. There's going to be a horrible consequence for you. You're going to be killed probably. But you could make that choice. That choice is still available to you. It is still a theoretical option. It may take a lot of courage, a lot of guts, but you could do it. And so you have free will. And so really, all of these things that Harris brings up, 
even though they're, they're good things to consider, and it's interesting to talk about them, they actually have nothing to do with free will at all because they, they, have, they, they have no bearing on the fact that we can still make whatever choice we want to make. You know, it is true, and I've talked about it myself, that um, m- most of the choices we make in life are determined by desire and opportunity. In other words, most of the things you've done in your life, you've done them, good or bad, you've done them because you wanted to, number one, and number two, because you had the opportunity to do it. And by opportunity, I mean not just the physical opportunity to do it, but also a chance to do it without there being, in your mind, horrible consequences for it. So good or bad, let's just focus on the bad for a minute. Every sin you've committed, every bad thing you've done, um, big or small thing, why did you do it? You did it because you wanted to and because you had the chance to. And that really is, and same for the good stuff. And that really does seemingly determine most of the things that we do in life. And in fact, most of the times when you decline to do a bad thing, uh, and, and maybe you want to give yourself moral credit for it and say, oh, I didn't do that because it's wrong. But really, no, that's not really the reason you didn't do it. The real reason you didn't do it is because probably because you didn't want to. Like I went into a store recently, um, kind of a mom and pop shop, and I was looking around, and whoever was supposed to be at the cash register was in the back for like 10 minutes. Store was unattended. There were no cameras. And I thought to myself, anyone could just walk in here and steal whatever they want. I could have stolen whatever I wanted. I didn't steal anything. Why didn't I steal something? I had the opportunity. Why didn't I steal it? Is it because stealing is wrong? Well, stealing is wrong, but that's not why I didn't do it. I didn't do it because I didn't want to. I just had no desire to steal. That's not something I want to do. I don't want to steal. No desire. Didn't even cross my mind. Crossed my mind as an option for someone else, and I was hoping the guy would come out soon. So that wouldn't happen. Um, Now, what if I was in that store, same situation, I got all the opportunity in the world, but I really, really, really want to steal. Maybe I'm a kleptomaniac. Maybe I've just been raised that stealing is okay. Uh, maybe I have a, you know, I, I'm, I've fallen on hard times and I, you know, whatever. Like, what if I really had that strong desire? Would I have stolen? I don't know. Maybe. You know, I think in order to know if, um, we are essentially slaves to opportunity and desire in our life. We just have to look and see, you know, how many occasions have there been in my life when I've really wanted to do something bad and I've really had the chance to do it without there being any consequence and I didn't do it. And I think if we do an honest assessment and we realize that, you know, pretty much every time I want to do something and I have the chance to do it, I do it. If that's the case for us, then that means that that's, that's, that's pretty much 100% confirmation that if you were in the situation of the drug dealer or the bank robber or the suicide bomber, you'd do, be doing that stuff too. But, but, opportunity and desire often do determine our actions as human beings, but they don't have to. You can overcome that. I mean, you can have the desire to do something bad and the opportunity, and not do it. Just like you could do something good, even though you really don't want to do the good thing, and it's a big hassle to do it, and you could still do it anyway. 
Most people don't act that way because most people lack virtue and lack courage and strength. I'm one of them. But that doesn't mean it has to be that way. You can overcome that. And that's, that's the beauty of free will. That's what it means to be free. You know, and, and, and so that, it, that's really the point. I, I think what, what Harris is really getting at is that we are weak, selfish people. And on that point, I have, I, I have no uh, disagreement. And he's also making the point that, hey, you know, you're a weak, selfish person. And so maybe slow your roll a little bit. Uh, you know, in, 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 in feeling superior to all these other people that have done bad things because you probably do the same thing. You like to claim you wouldn't, but you probably would. And on that point, I agree. It's a good point. But I just, I wish he could make that point without bringing free will into it because, uh, you know, free will is also the thing that is, 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 that is the, it's freedom. I mean, it's, it's also the, the escape offered to people in these horrible situations. What about, what about the kid who is brought up in a situation where most people become drug dealers? Don't we want to say to him, look, you don't have to do this. You can make a better choice. You don't have to be a slave to this. You can do something better. Sam Harris seems to be saying, and anyone who's a determinist is basically saying, no, there's no point of even, get, of even, of even uh, relaying that message to that kid because he has no choice. And I think that's a horrible, horrible mistake. All right. Um, so that's free will. And I also chose, it was my free will, to spend 30 minutes babbling about that. So there you go. We all make choices. That was mine. And I think we'll leave it here. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Thanks for listening. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay, supervising producer Mathis Glover, supervising producer Robert Sterling, technical producer Austin Stevens, editor Donovan Fowler, audio mixer Robin Fenderson. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2020. Hey everyone, it's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. The Iranians have taken to the street to protest their oppressive government, which overturns the media narrative that Trump's killing of a terrorist leader united them. But the question isn't whether the media lies, it's whether the left wants to hear the truth at all. You will hear it on The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven.